This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Well, the temperature here still in around the 11 degree mark. Is that right? Yeah. Claudette, yeah, 11 degrees or so in the uh, metro region. But I know that the uh, forecast high in the Ottawa region today was supposed to be in the high 30s. Would you believe high 30s from June the 1st? Yeah, I wouldn't wish that, especially, you know, for parts of the country that's dealing with wildfires, well, for instance. Exactly. And uh, that's what's leading me to this uh, next story. Federal officials report forest fires have charred a record-breaking 27,000 square kilometers of forest in Canada so far this year. And that number is expected to rise as hot, dry, windy conditions fuel out-of-control fires in Nova Scotia. The government is sending in the military and some of the fire crews from the U.S. and South Africa who are due to arrive this weekend will head for Nova Scotia. Others will help out on the fire lines in Alberta where an out-of-control fire continues to threaten the evacuated community of Fort Chippewan. Uh, meanwhile, firefighters in Quebec battling two out-of-control wildfires, including one near Chape on the nor- in the north that has forced the evacuation of about one-third of the community of 1,500 people. The fire only started yesterday, but quickly grew to just under 1,400 hectares. The province is using water bombers to try to control the fire, and heavy machines are being used to create a, a fire guard between the fire and the town of Chape. There are about a dozen active fires in Quebec as we speak, of course, Quebec being the largest uh, province by um, uh, geographic um, size in Canada and very heavily forested, as you know. Well, it's uh, it's very alarming uh, what's happening to our friends in Nova Scotia. I took a call from a gentleman quite emotional in the newsroom today saying that he has personally called the premier to thank him for sending water bombers to Nova Scotia because he has two boys in Nova Scotia and uh, at least one of them, I think he said, uh, had to evacuate, still doesn't know whether his house is still standing or not. Terrifying stuff. So I just thought I'd share that. Well, in other news, the RNC has laid charges against a 51-year-old paradise man in connection with a street racing incident that resulted in a two-vehicle crash during the rush hour on Topsail Road in St. John's in late March. The crash occurred around 5.30 on the afternoon of March 29th in the area of Cowan Avenue. And I remember it well, working in the newsroom, just coming off the air, as a matter of fact, and and coming into the newsroom to take a, a flurry of calls from people who witnessed the crash and were sending us pictures from the scene. And I think one of our reporters actually went down, swung by on the way home, and the um, the damage was extensive. A pla- black car collided with a blue minivan as the van was turning left onto Cowan Avenue. Damage was extensive. Both drivers were taken to hospital for treatment. Well, RNC Constable James Cadigan joins me now. Good afternoon, James Cadigan. How you doing? So, uh, RNC have laid a charge in connection with uh, an alleged street racing incident. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so uh, March 29th of this year, our officers did respond to a collision which occurred on Topsail Road at the intersection with uh, Cowan Avenue. The officers observed that uh, the collision involved two vehicles being a black sedan and a blue minivan. Uh, so the Accident Investigation Division of the RNC, uh, they were engaged to investigate the event. There were some injuries uh, believed to be minor in nature to the operator of each vehicle. 
Uh, as a result of uh, the investigation, the officers uh, were able to obtain information uh, that led them to uh, have grounds to believe that uh, a street race had occurred prior to the event of the collision. Uh, so certainly in, in the course of an investigation of this nature, it would include speaking to witnesses and uh, going back to find out what uh, behaviors and, and driving activities occurred leading up to a collision and also uh, a judicial authorization to examine the event, uh, event data record of each vehicle involved, which would provide information such as speeds and, and different uh, other details re related to the vehicles involved. Uh, so as a result of that investigation, it was determined that the black sedan, which had been traveling on Topsail Road in St. John's, uh, was traveling at a speed of in excess of 130 kilometers an hour on Topsail Road prior to the collision. And certainly we know that Topsail Road has a speed limit of 50 kilometers an hour and in the area of Cowan Avenue, uh, certainly the you know, sight lines are, are becoming much shorter uh, with traffic and, and residential areas. So uh, in the course of that investigation, uh, they also revealed that it was believed some street racing had occurred with another vehicle on Topsail Road that was traveling at a high rate of speed. So as a result of uh, those investigative measures, the uh, Accident Investigation Division did lay charges upon a 51-year-old operator who was operating the black sedan involved in the collision. Uh, that operator was charged with dangerous driving and in addition was given a summary offense ticket under the Highway Traffic Act for racing on a highway. That individual was released to appear in court on a later date and uh, in addition an operator of a blue sedan, which had been traveling on Topsail Road uh, leading up to the collision, but was not involved in the collision. Uh, that operator of that vehicle was issued a ticket for racing on a highway. I can recall that uh, crash. I mean, 5.30 on a busy Wednesday afternoon. That's when traffic is really uh, still quite heavy, especially on a road like Topsail Road. And uh, we had numerous calls to the VOCM newsroom at the time, and people were sending us pictures. And it, it looks like it could have been far, far worse. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you uh, always fear the worst when you uh, consider a collision at a a high traffic time such as 5.30 in the evening and uh, certainly when you hear these speeds, uh, the individuals involved here are very lucky to uh, be with us today. So this, uh, this charge of dangerous driving, uh, what, um, you know, what could accrue from that? What kind of uh, penalty could come from something like that? Uh, so I, I wouldn't want to speculate on, on where this would go uh, with the court process. But uh, certainly the information we're submitting to the court suggests that uh, the operation of, of the vehicle uh, caused this collision and uh, certainly put the uh, motoring public in danger. And a, and a ticket issued to the other vehicle allegedly involved. Um, it, would more serious charges be contemplated there as well? So at this time, with the, this particular investigation, the uh, action you know, taken by the investigators was to uh, 
provide that individual with a ticket for racing on a highway, which is a substantial, uh, you know, essentially the officers would believe that 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 operator was racing on a public highway or roadway in our province. And uh, the information there would have that individual uh, with whatever penalties are associated with that particular uh, Highway Traffic Act offence. Constable James Cadigan, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. And uh, Constable Cadigan, of course, talking about that crash on uh, Topsail Road on March 29th. But that's not the only incident in recent months. The RNC also put out a release today involving dangerous driving charges laid as a result of a four-vehicle crash on Kenmount Road on the morning of April 4th. I don't know if you remember that one, Claudette, but it was right over here, I say, pointing on the radio, uh, near Pippi Place. It was 10.45 in the morning uh, near the intersection with Pippi Place. And for anybody who's not sure where Pippi Place is, it's right there by the... uh, uh, Canada Post and uh, the Ramada. Do they still call it the Ramada oh, Inn? You know, yeah, that, I know that the intersection hotel, yeah. there. Busy spot. Um, RNC say a black Honda Civic changed into the center lane to pass a westbound car, collided with a Honda Accord, forcing the Accord into the oncoming traffic where it collided with two eastbound vehicles. Police say the Honda Civic was driving in excess of 120 kilometers per hour on Kenmount Road in the moments leading up to the collision while the Accord was traveling in excess of 130 kilometers per hour on Kenmount Road, yeah. 10.45 in the morning. Turning their vehicle into a weapon. That's exactly yeah. what it, 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 like, what it appears to be. The driver of the Black Civic, a 25-year-old woman from Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, and the driver of the Black Accord, a 21-year-old St. John's man, have each been charged with dangerous driving. They were released to appear in court at a later date. Well, uh, frightening. It's frightening that no one was killed in either of those two incidents, and I do recall the one in in March and saw the damage there, and it was extraordinary. Anyway, um, charges laid there, so uh, we'll see what comes out of that in the courtrooms. When we come back, a four-year sentence sentence has been handed down for a man convicted of impaired driving causing death. VOCM's Brian Callahan will join us right after this. This is News Talk on VOCM. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we're back. Uh, well, a Mount Pearl man has been sentenced to four years and four months in prison for killing his girlfriend while driving drunk. VOCM's Brian Callohan has been following the case involving Tyler Harding and was in the court this morning. Brian, tell us a little bit about this particular case. Hi, Linda. Yeah, um, this is uh, unfortunately, sadly, similar to at least two others in the past um, six months that have made their way to court. Uh, once again, so uh, I'll give you a synopsis. So this was back um, in August of 21, 2021. It's hard to keep, I don't know what it is with the pandemic, Linda, but it's hard to keep my years straight. So I, I, um, that's my reference point. When was 2020? This happened in August the 8th of 2021 on the Torbay Bypass Road. Um, uh, the gentleman, um, Tyler Harding, and his girlfriend, Katie Hines. And they were at the Bella Vista on Torbay Road and uh, just out for a night uh, with some friends and others at at the uh, club. And at some point, um, you know, witnesses said how much they watched them both drink. No question, they were both inebriated, both were drunk. At some point, there was a bit of an argument over something or other. They were fighting and arguing. They go to get in his truck. Uh, She gets out. A friend tries to urge her not to get back in the truck. She does get back in. They go. uh, They leave. They tear out of the parking lot. 
head towards Torbay, um, and on the bypass road, about 15 minutes later, uh, it crashes. And it doesn't just crash. It crashes spectacularly. It's a head over, or a head over, um, front end, uh, over front end, and um, catapulted into the air. Uh, the victim, Katie Hines, 29 years old, was thrown from the vehicle, pronounced dead at the scene. Um, Mr. Harding survived with injuries, uh, not severe injuries, but he did not like threatening, I guess, as the police say these days. And uh, ultimately, he was charged uh, with impaired driving causing death. He did have one previous impaired charge back in 2013. Um, you know, Linda, uh, once again, um, you know, people tried to stop them and everything. And, you know, Judge Phyllis Harris pointed out a lot of uh, very sobering, excuse the pun, um, uh, facts today in court, you know, that it's frustrating for judges. They often talk about how difficult this is because, you know, there is a range for sentencing. You can't go outside the range. And ultimately, no sentence is going to replace the loved one that was lost. And sitting behind me in court today were five, six or seven uh, family and, you know, relatives, friends. And you could hear the, you know, throughout, you could just, it's heart-wrenching. It's behind you, but you, you, the telltale signs of the trying to hold back the tears and trying to catch a breath without crying out loud in a courtroom. You know, there's supposed to be a level of decorum still there, despite what happens in those courtrooms sometimes. And um, ultimately, after the judge, four years, four months, they burst, you know, they couldn't hold it anymore. And there was... There was quite an outpouring. Uh, it was, you know, it's really heart, heart, very heart-wrenching. Uh, Mr. Harding was on video from Stephenville, so he wasn't in the courtroom to have to physically experience that today. He was there uh, two months ago when he was convicted, uh, but he was taken into custody and then he was in Stephenville. So, you know, too often, Linda, these are playing out. Uh, I'll never say they're all the same because clearly no person is the same. This woman, Katie Hines, clearly, you know, through all the impact, impact statements, you know, just full of life, loved, you know, wonderful person and taken just by this act uh, that night. So four years, four months, the, and the judge admits there's no way, you know, that, that doesn't equate to a human life. But uh, the judges are beside themselves. They don't know what to do with these cases anymore. Especially difficult, given that the the facts of the case show that, uh, you know, well, first of all, this could have been prevented on a number of levels, uh, but that people tried to intervene here. People knew something bad might happen. It kills you. You know, that fact that there was a moment where she was out of the truck and there's a chance there, you know, if she could have just said, yeah, okay, I'll stay with you. But uh, no way. Got back in, and and that was it. And you know, this is this is eerily similar to a case um, uh, sentencing back in January. You might rec- uh, recall um, there was a gentleman, Jonathan Nash, who was sentenced to five and a half years. Same situation. This happened out on uh, um, Pittsmoyle Drive near the turnoff to the Irish Loop, or where you go to Commonwealth Avenue, the off ramp. And again, similar thing, girlfriend, boyfriend, uh, had an argument. Uh, there were, uh, you know, um, efforts for her to get out of the vehicle. But uh, ultimately, it crashed. He was charged with impaired causing death. And uh, again, he was sentenced to five and a half years. This case today was four and a half years. Not much to tell, you know, there's aggravating and mitigating factors, why it's one year more or one year less. Uh, in this case, I guess Mr. Nash had several uh, previous impaired driving offenses and uh, Mr. Harding had one so maybe in the jigs and reels there you know you can hash out the uh, 
hash out the prison terms. But again, it doesn't. It's tough. Judges know that ultimately, whatever sentence they give, it's a strictly illegal decision, and there's no way they can replace that person. But that was two, and then there's another one, Linda, still coming up now, the high-profile one uh, involving the death of Brad Caravan, and that was on Pitts Memorial. Um, and Joshua Burt was charged with that. That was a year ago. This a year ago in March, I believe, or April. And, uh, you know, hit head on by a drunk driver, allegedly. Um, Joshua Burt is charged, is uh, expected. Uh, you know, the last court appearance, I have to be very careful here, but, you know, there was all in signal intention for guilty pleas here. Hasn't happened yet, but they did set a date for that. So that's uh, due, to end, uh, due to happen in late June, where it's expected formal uh, guilty pleas will be entered, but that hasn't happened. So, um, uh, again, th- until that happens, I can't say it has happened. Um, and then there's Doug Skiffington, a 53-year-old man, who killed a man on a motorcycle um, near Jamestown, more rural, out of town. But, uh, again, these four cases were all within the past year and a half uh, to two years and are eerily similar with the girlfriends and the others, just impaired causing death of strangers, you know. So Tyler Harding uh, sentenced to four years, four months. That's a federal uh, prison term. What happens now? Yeah, anything over two years is federal. So he will serve that. He's also got a uh, 15-year driving prohibition, some might say, you know, what do you mean 15 years? It probably should be for life, but um, he, um, it was, uh, the Crown had looked for 20 years and the uh, defense had looked for 10 years. That's just a 15-year driving prohibition. Other things, he has to provide his DNA and, you know, clearly under the microscope for some time. Uh, you know, even you could tell this has affected him as well. Just, you know, when you weigh it against the victim, uh, it's easy to see how the family and relatives don't have as much sympathy in this kind of case. Well, I mean, the impact is, is wide, isn't it? I mean, uh, her family, his family, oh, uh, the w- you know. broader community, friends, uh, everyone is affected by these types yep. of things. Those decisions, you know, that you make uh, under the influence. Um, and, and, you know, no, Linda, on the other note, I know you had James Cadigan on there, just in a broader context with these, you know, dr- uh, impaired cases. And then the street racing, I, you know, in a general context, it's just amazing. You've got to have eyes in the back of your head these days because even the safest drivers, you know, it just seems that there's more and more mayhem on the streets. Maybe just me, I don't know. But I, I count an extra three seconds before I pull through any intersection these days. And eyes in the back of my head because the amount of red lights that are run alone, let alone just how inst- instantly your life can change. And when you're sitting in court, listening to the minutiae, the details of little things that happen along the way that led to it. You know, if this doesn't happen, if that door isn't open, if they don't go in through that door, if they don't take that right-hand turn, if, 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 if. And uh, it just opens your eyes, you know, to uh, to the wider picture of just being a little bit more worldly and aware of your surroundings. But I tell you, you, you don't want to have your mind on anything other than driving these days. That's all I will say. No, absolutely. And of course, then there's the whole issue of distracted driving as a whole. And we've seen some horrific yeah. cases involving that as well and, uh, and sentences as a result. Uh, Brian Callahan, I appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. I'm still on the clock, so no problem. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Brian Callahan, uh, um, who was in the courtroom this morning for the sentencing for uh, Tyler Harding, and we appreciate that. Uh, Heart-wrenching stories, uh, for sure. Anything coming out of the courts uh, is heart-wrenching. And um, when we come back, uh, World Energy GH2 buys the port of Stephenville. We'll have details on that from the 
the Managing Director and CEO of World Energy GH2, Sean Leet. This is News Talk on VOCM. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. And we're back. Well, World Energy GH2, that's the company behind that massive hydrogen um, and wind project on the southwest coast of the province, is recently closed the acquisition of the Port of Stephenville, which the company says will help in the development of hydrogen projects in the region. World Energy GH2 calls the acquisition of the port an important step towards the shipping of green hydrogen and green ammonia to global markets. Managing Director and CEO uh, Sean Leet joins me now. Sean Leet, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the acquisition of the Port of Stephenville. How did it come to be? We um, we viewed the port uh, initially as soon as we understood it was available for sale as a as a key asset for developing the um, our project, um, the pr- province's first green hydrogen development, and, and a key asset for standing up the green hydrogen industry in the province. So we started discussions um, fa- fairly quickly after we, we understood it was for sale. Um, it's uh, originally built by the U.S. Navy. It's got large shipping capacity, a deep water channel. Um, it's it's an amazing asset for, for the region. And the unique uh, aspects of it, including the ones I mentioned, plus a large uh, industrial freshwater supply, uh, amongst other things, lend itself to an expedited schedule for a project uh, of our nature. So a um, n- number of things um, caused us to focus on it and advance the transaction. So who was it in possession of prior to this? Was it, uh, had it been transferred to the town or was it uh, privately owned? I can't remember the exact uh, history on it. Yeah, it was privately owned port. Um, the, um, the port owners that we completed the transaction with yesterday were, um, were excellent stewards of the asset, kept it in top condition. Um, it has all of the certifications that are necessary for international shipping of various products. Um, and, and it was um, a, a transaction that came together that I think uh, all parties were, were quite happy with at the end of the day. And this is a deep water port too, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the, um, the U.S. military uh, spared no expense in constructing the facility. Uh, 10-meter water depth channel um, into what was, was formerly a pond. Um, and then the improvements that were made over the years as a result of the, uh, the pulp and paper mill being there with um, a 230 kV grid connection and the fresh water supply I mentioned are, are, are huge uh, additions um, to the asset from the perspective of what we require for our project. Now, the goal, I think, is for uh, green hydrogen to start being shipped over to Germany by 2025. That's a really short window. What happens now? It absolutely is a short window. Um, Minister Wilkinson, on August 23rd of 2022 in Stephenville, uh, set, set down a significant challenge for the industry, but you know, we're working hard to, to meet that challenge. And we've already uh, started uh, an abundance of activity around uh, our environmental uh, permitting and, and assessment work, uh, pre-feed activities for, for plant construction, logistics, um, and uh, a number of other uh, engineering activities that will allow us to hit the ground running once we receive our environmental permits, which which we hope to receive later this year. 
So what do you need, um, what kind of assets do you need uh, to build there in order to fulfill, you know, um, your mandate? Well, interestingly, because of the, uh, the, the, the way the port was developed o- over the years, we have um, a lot of the infrastructure in place, as mentioned, the grid connection, the freshwater supply, the deep water channel. So uh, the port itself doesn't require an abundance of modifications. We will be constructing a plant um, near, near the dock uh, itself. And, of course, the wind farms will be constructed in, in um, the, the areas that, that we've targeted that are now under review by Crown Lands as part of the competition. Um, so it's, um, it's a bit of a, um, uh, you know, a, a multifaceted effort, I guess I'll say. And... Uh, There'll be um, various um, uh, equipment required for for the individual co- uh, components of the project, but again, not not a lot of construction um, within the marine facilities themselves. How many uh, vessels can this um, uh, port accommodate at any given time? Uh, that's dependent on the size of the vessels. Um, if you were to, to be at the port now, I believe there's two or three um, offshore support vessel sized, you know, 80 meter vessels that are berthed there and they, they don't really occupy um, half of the, uh, of the facility, the turning basin and the, and the dock facility. Um, the ships we envision uh, calling at the port once we're into full production will be larger vessels, um, but the, the port can easily accommodate uh, those as, as they call on a, a basis of about um, one every week and a half once we're into full production. And are there any um, special environmental or or uh, safety uh, concerns related to uh, the transshipment of green hydrogen and ammonia uh, through a port facility? Is there anything special that you need to, t- to, um, to have in place to accommodate that? There is. Um, but ammonia has been produced for decades and, and shipped safely for, for decades as well, um, over 40 years. Uh, so the, the safety protocols are extremely well established, both for the ports and, and actually the entire logistics chain. Uh, we've got um, experienced engineering firms engaged on the logistics front and on the shipping front as well. And we're in discussions with uh, various off, off takers and shipping companies and we'll be um, uh, taking our cue from the European ports that are developing the receiving infrastructure, such as the Port of Rotterdam, the Port of Williamshaven, and the Port of Hamburg, who are actively under development with uh, with various green ammonia projects. And is there a dollar figure on this transaction, or is that proprietary? Yeah, we're bound by confidentiality on the commercial terms of the deal, but um, again, I'll say that I believe that everybody uh, around the table was was pleased with the outcome and the conclusion of the transaction yesterday. Well, Sean Leet, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. We appreciate the opportunity. And Sean Leet is the managing director and CEO of World Energy GH2, which just uh, acquired the port of Stephenville. Coming up, Equinor speaks to Energy NL. This is News Talk on VOCM. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM.
Well, it was the address everyone was waiting for, and yet Equinor's Tori Luseth indicated it wasn't the one he was prepared to present. The Norwegian company yesterday announced that it was delaying its massive Beta Nord project for up to three years, sending shockwaves through the local offshore oil and construction industries. Well, here's what uh, here's part of uh, Tori Luseth's address to the Energy NL Conference in St. John's this morning. I hope you can appreciate that uh, this was not the speech that I wanted to have this morning. And in fact, that up until very recently was not the speech I had prepared. To announce uh, difficult news this week is incredibly tough. But uh, as soon as the decision was made, we knew it was critical to be open and honest. We had to communicate out of respect and care to our employees, contractors, and stakeholders here. Equinor has always been and continues to be an open and transparent company, and especially during difficult conversations. Beta Nord needs to work towards a final investment decision, and with its current economics, we would not have achieved the approval that our team, our industry, and our province has been working so hard for. But the project is not being shelved. To the contrary, we have a clear desire, both in BP and in Equinor, to make this project work. And as Charlene said yesterday, this project has seen numerous delays in the past number of years, and we agree that this is a bump in the road to what we still feel is, will be a successful project. Our appreciation of the support we have received from P Premier Fury, Minister Parsons, Energy NL, including Charlene, their team and board, as well as this entire energy industry, cannot be understated. The first question, surprises for Tora. <laughs> what does this delay mean and how likely is it that the project will now proceed to a sanctioned decision? So this delay means that we will take now some time to figure out how we can make this project um, competitive, a stronger project, and moving forward uh, in the value chain towards the final investment decision. And um, I think it's a very good chance that we will make this work, uh, because like I presented, this is an exciting opportunity, um, and we will continue to work it. And that's the clear focus of our teams uh, in Equinor and in BP. So, uh, this is, uh, this is no more than, uh, you know, we need to take more time to make it uh, good enough for a final investment decision. Does the delay in the Beta Nord project have any uh, effect or impact on the planned 2024 offshore Newfoundland exploration campaign? So we're still assessing uh, and, and working towards drilling uh, exploration wells in 2024. So that's, uh, that's something we're working towards. What do we need to do to improve the project uh, and the business case and uh, essentially get the, the project uh, back on, on track for FID? 
That is a very good question, and that's exactly the question that we will be working hard to solve uh, now in the future. So we will work with our partner, but we will also work with all stakeholders, invite all stakeholders in to, to give uh, you know good, good ideas of how we can actually make this a, a competitive project. But uh, we have already a lot of uh, good ideas, you know, on the project uh, basis of, of how we can uh, how we can make it a competitive project. So we're looking forward to to get back and roll up our sleeves and start working on that. What are some of the items that will be under assessment uh, during this delay and uh, that would lead to the project being more competitive? And what are the leading factors that uh, you know, will contribute to a positive FID? Yeah, again, you know, this is exactly the questions that we are uh, going back to, to address. Um, and this is not new to us. You know, it has happened uh, with uh, other projects in the past. Uh, like uh, one good example is the Yuan Casper example in, in the Barents Sea, where um, because of the economics, it was too high cost base. Um, we went back, we challenged uh, everything, you know, looked at new concepts, and we were able, together with uh, our partners, uh, our, our, our uh, the service industry, to, to really turn it around and make significant improvements on, on the cost of that project. So, so this is something that we have done before, so we think we can do it. Um, and, 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 you know, yeah, that's... That's one of the things we will look into. What, what messaging uh, would you say to companies that have invested uh, previously on Bait and Ord or to date? Um, and um, what about uh, you know some employees who have left stable companies to, to seek opportunities on uh, on Bait and Ord while we have this this pause for in the project? This, this delay um, is because we have to take more time to make it a more competitive project. Uh, we have seen cost inflation, and uh, I think we have all experienced that sort of individually. Uh, more costs, inflation, uh, and that, that's true also for, for, for Baden Nord. So now we need to take that time, and we will invite the, the, our, our partners, uh, service industries, uh, you know, um, Contractors that we are already working with to to help us out to find out how can we actually make this uh, competitive. So, I, but I will I will stay, uh, say that uh, you know we have a long-term presence here in Canada in Equinor. There is no uh, implications for staffing or anything like that in in our office. So we are, like I said, continuing to work this hard to to realize it in the future. So that's Equinor's Tori Luseth uh, addressing Energy NL this morning and fielding some questions from the audience about this massive decision uh, announced yesterday that uh, has just rattled, I guess, the offshore industry and um, and the construction industry as well because uh, Beta Nord represented, uh, you know, great, uh, I guess, employment opportunities. Uh, anyway, it has been delayed for the next three years. Well, the Premier uh, says he's disappointed but not defeated by yesterday's announced delay. He told the Energy NL conference in St. John's the field will be developed. He also said that the province is perfectly positioned to feed the energy transition given the windy conditions here. The company cited challenging market conditions and increased costs. But it hasn't cancelled the project. And it has cancelled others. 
It hasn't closed up shop, maintaining its office and employees here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And quite frankly, we've become accustomed to delays when it comes to major projects at this point. My government will continue to work with Equinor in our offshore, and we look forward to a continued partnership with Hibernia, Hibernia South Extension, Bay du Nord, and other potential projects. The key here, though, my friends, is I will work with, I will not work for any company. This is how true partnerships work. This is how they have to work. I work for you. I don't work for any company. It might be easy to forget these days as Newfoundland and Labrador celebrates its leading edge in the international energy market, as we celebrate population growth for the first time in decades, an unemployment rate that has hit the lowest point since we started to measure it, debt lowering, credit rating improving, a $5.2 billion deal to help solve Muskrat Falls. It might be easy to forget, but not too long ago, many of you in this room were worried about the end of the oil industry in our province. The steps of the Confederation Building were packed with people, families, worried about the end of employment opportunities, worried we wouldn't see Terra Nova get back on track, worried that Beta Nor would be canceled by the federal government, worried West White Rose would not restart, worried there would be no more drilling. But your government, my government, was unwavering in its commitment to you. We fought together, and here we are, Terra Nova moving forward, together with its asset life extension. Concrete being poured today on the West White Rose. Beta Nor got a much anticipated, controversial environmental green light to move forward by the federal government. None of that happened by chance. It happened because we used our edge. We fought just as we have always fought. And I was proud to lead those fights with optimism and hope and confidence that we can continue to make responsible decisions for the benefit of all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And that's Premier Andrew Fury uh, speaking to the Energy NL conference today. Well, Claudette, um, Cape Spear, it's one of my favorite places to go to. It's just amazing, isn't it? I haven't it? been there. In, it is, but I haven't been there in such a long time. But um, I know I used to take some guests to the province down that right. way. And yeah. uh, one of the things that uh, people would often say is, you know, is there anywhere you can get a Coke or a Pepsi here? Or and Americans always want Coke. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. It's like Coke. Uh, but anyway, because uh, <laughs> we are a Pepsi province. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, so, you know, there's always somebody who says, you know, how come I can't get a ice cream here or a cup of tea? It's a or, fair point. Right? Or going somewhere, it's a little bit out of the way. You want to be able to have a refreshment. Yeah. But also they didn't up until recently have really good sound bathroom facilities there either. So, I mean, <laughs> you can see a little bit 
of how is a cause and effect kind of thing there. <laughs> but anyway, that's all settled away. So they've opened up a new little cafe in the area. I heard through our I newscast. Know. And Jerry Lynn Mackey was down there today, and she had a look around, and she says it's really quite something else. Well, um, uh, Jerry Lynn Mackey toured the space earlier today, and she spoke with Parks Canada Manager for National Historic Sites and Visitor Experience. There's a title for you, Glenn Keough, about the season ahead and much more. Are you prepared for this summer? I mean, what if there's an absolute explosion and it's so crowded? Yeah. Well, we are. We are. Uh, and we, we actually, we do fully expect it, notwithstanding the weather. Uh, even with the weather the way it is today, we're still getting still lots of traffic through the cafe here, and we're getting lots of people into the site. Um, so it, it's, 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 it's something that we expect every year here. We get, a, we get on average, around 300,000 person visits a year through the site here. So, you know, we get a lot of people coming through here. If there's lots of whales, we'll get more. If there's icebergs that come in, we're going to get more. And now at the cafe, I think we're going to even get even more, which is great. But I mean, we're fully prepared for it. We have uh, we have lots of staff on here. We have some summer students that we've hired. So yeah, we're we're looking forward to more. The more the merrier out here. We do ask people again. Visitor safety is top of mind when anybody comes to the National Historic Sites. And we've all seen videos of um, behavior that's not the uh, that, that that's not taking those those uh, concerns into consideration. So we ask anybody who comes to the site here for the cafe or just to visit the site to stay on the trail. They're all very well marked. Don't go past those safety signs. Uh, stay away from cliffs and stay away from the coastlines, uh, and, you know, so that you have a safe visit when you come here. And, uh, of course, the cafe itself is going to have a, a picnic offer here. And so we ask the same thing. If you're taking a picnic from here, stay on those designated areas. Stay on the shelves. There's lots of spaces on the site here where you can, you can safely sit down and have a picnic and get lots of views of the, of the, of the ocean and of the, the cliffs and those types of things. So that's the, that's the main thing, I think, when we get people to come here, is that uh, just be aware of your surroundings and uh, remain safe. And I mean, today is the 1st of June, so most of the National Historic Sites on the eastern half of the island, are they opening today? Uh, yeah, the National Historic Sites are opening today and all the, na in, and all the, uh, the sites within the eastern Newfoundland, yeah. Uh, so we have all kinds of opportunities. We have all kinds of uh, programs and activities that we're offering at all the other sites. We just ask people to go to our Facebook page or other online platforms to see exactly what's going on for the summer. Excellent. And while I have you here, uh, I would also like to ask about the foxes on Signal Hill. I know that they were airlifted at one time, maybe last year, because they were sort of becoming too friendly. Recently, someone sent me a photo. They had seen a couple of foxes. What, what's the situation with the foxes on Signal Hill? Well, we, do, we have noticed foxes up there again. It's almost impossible task to get rid of all the foxes in the St. John's area from what we've been, well, what we've learned from the city, but also from uh, uh, provincial officials as well. I mean, they're they're in the area, and so. So what we ask people to do is that uh, if you love the foxes and you want to you want you want to still see them around, then don't feed them, as that creates problems not only with uh, potential visitor safety problems, because these are wild animals after all, but it also creates issues with the foxes and the you know the uh, the, the potential that they would have to be euthanized. Foxes in this area or foxes anywhere don't need any help in finding food. There's lots of food sources on Signal Hill. There's lots of food sources in the area, natural food sources that they would have. If you're feeding foxes, especially if you're feeding young foxes, then, then they're going to lose that ability. They're going to lose that skill, and they're going to get more and more acclimated to, to uh, people. And so, you know, in some cases you have to, in, in the case of uh, we had a few years ago, we did relocate them to uh, Terranova, and by all accounts, that was a successful relocation. But that's... 
Uh, that's uh, Glenn Keogh uh, with Parks Canada speaking with uh, Jerry Lynn Mackey today at uh, this new cafe that they've opened up at Cape Spear. Very exciting. And uh, um, they're even going to be offering Claudette uh, little like picnic Oh, I love that. Isn't that a nice idea? Yeah, because it reminds me of the Fairyland picnic, which I've done before, which it was just out of like uh, a magazine. You know, the whales looked like they were tied on just for the tourists. Like it was just perfect. So I can only imagine what it would be like at Cape Spare. And I think just going for coffee with friends or with people that uh, you know that haven't even been in Newfoundland, Labrador and having such scenery around you. It's one of life's little pleasures that I think we take for granted. So it's nice that we actually get to experience that and even for just for a day trip, yeah you, you know, don't little, have to have people visiting you I right. feel like getting out of town where am I gonna go yeah Cape Spear. I don't think of the usual tourist places like I'm glad you brought that up because now that is going to be on my summer bucket list there you go and watch the waves and yeah. the wind and smell that sweetness of the the hay and the trees yeah. and all that stuff it's just wonderful good for the soul for sure um well that's it for us for today we'll be back tomorrow do join us then thanks for listening and have a great day